Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Material Matters, hosted by me, Grant Gibson. In each podcast, we'll be meeting a maker, designer, artist or architect who is intrinsically linked to a particular material or technique, discovering how their craft shape their lives and careers. In this latest episode, it's wonderful to be joined by the textile artist Celia Pym. Now, I think it's safe to say that Celia has turned darning and small acts of repair into an art form, taking clothes that otherwise might be thrown away and giving them a new meaning. Her pieces are often centred around grief, loss and tiny but symbolic acts of care. The artist has been shortlisted for the prestigious 2017 Loewe Craft Prize and the 2017 Women's Hour Craft Prize. Celia, thanks very much for inviting us into your studio. Thanks for having me. That's my pleasure. I mean, it's intriguing to be here. Can we Uh talk a little bit about where you work and, and how you work? I mean, I'm intrigued particularly by uh, Phila de Barlow yeah. on the wall there. What, what is it about Phila's work that you Well, enjoy? I love... I was actually reading about Phila's work yesterday, um, the Folly catalogue from the um, Venice Biennale last year. I love the readiness of her work and the sort of sense of thing... the ambiguity and the sense of things maybe falling apart a little, and yet they're super robust at the same time. That's always what I see in them. But the reason I've got that portrait on the wall... Um, of her is because she's in her studio clothes and I had the picture above of Agnes Martin before I had the picture of Villa de Barlow and you can see they're both wearing blue jeans and a sort of blue top and I love this idea that women in their studios wear blue jeans and blue tops and get messy I don't know I just they're both yeah like and, and I there am. you are and I, that wasn't on purpose but <laughs> I I mean I've loved Agnes Martin's work for a long time as well and uh yeah, so it's an accidental, that wall is just a slow accumulation of female artists sort of in their studio that I like. Can we discuss your background? Yeah. I mean, how important were your family in getting you into textiles, I wonder? Um, my family are all, I would say, more or less makers in some way or other, certainly my immediate family. I grew up in a household with my parents and my siblings and my great aunt and great uncle my grandparents, and next door was an aunt and uncle. So oh, it was right, a, really? Wow. Yeah, so there were nine of us in one house, and then an aunt and uncle next door, and some cousins up the road. And where so was this? This was in Kent. Right. Well, okay. actually, initially in North London, and then in Kent. And um, they all, you know, our house had things which I assumed everyone had, but I've come to learn it's not true, string drawers, endless toolkits for fixing things, stuff that didn't work was available to figure out how to make it work again. They weren't, and they were, my great uncle was a painter and he lived in the house and his studio was in the house. So he was painting, you know, you saw his daily work happening. My great aunt was an amazing gardener. There was a big garden that they looked after. They were all, they knew about the natural world, but they also knew about making. And certainly they all could more or less knit my mum's a good knitter though she's very modest about it and says she's not so it wasn't that they particularly encouraged me to do textiles it was just part of the background of my life I think as a child this making and doing and playing with materials um do you remember the first time you picked up textiles and and started um, making I vaguely remember my mum making me a green mohair sweater when I was quite young it was cardigan and I think I was quite interested in this wool. I'm not sure if I knit on it or not, or if I just was really into that wool. And then I studied textiles when I was about 11 or 10 or something. You know, I had a class at school and I made... It's funny, I really remember clearly the satisfaction of it. I made a little cross-stitch picture of a fox at night and that really hit... The, I mean, that's still a sensation I chase, that feeling of total completion on a piece of work. Um, yeah. 
So I think that was early engagement with textiles. I knit, I mean, people tried to teach me to knit. I'm sort of a, a, a fickle learner in that someone <laughs> tells me something's a good idea to learn and then um, I'm not convinced until I've decided it's a good idea to learn it. You know, so even the most... Uh, reliable individual says oh you'll love this and I'm like until I discover it for myself I'm like no I'm not sure I will love this so I know that I was taught to knit when I was little but I didn't really pick it up again until I was 20 I think because you've had this kind of extraordinary fascinating I mean genuinely eclectic Mm. career yeah and I mean initially studying sculpture at Harvard yeah I mean what made you decide to do that and what did you learn there well, first of all, the first story about that was that I decided to go to the States anyway. You know, I grew up in the UK. Right. My mum's American. My pa- my grandparents uh, lived in Boston, where Harvard is. And I really was excited about the US. I really want to go there. So I went. And then, I mean, the funny thing about Harvard was that uh, it's such an academic institution. And the art department's tiny. In my graduating class, I think there were maybe five other students in studio like mm. me so that's a class of 1800 five people are doing studio arts there were a lot of more filmmaking students what were you kind of making yeah there? i'm trying to th- i'm trying to think how to tell you this <laughs> um i was making i was working with really heavy materials i loved sculpture because you don't start with your i just i took an intro to sculpture class and i adored it i adored making plaster i liked concrete i liked welding i liked Big things. I like things that were bigger than my body, and the sculpture department seems to do that. And three them, and it was material as well. Painting didn't take for me at all. Um, Why not? It was too flat. It was really, really. I also didn't get it. I just didn't. You know, the tool of the brush didn't make sense to me. And we were. I mean, it was quite an experimental painting course that I remember doing. I did a couple of painting courses, but it really wasn't. I liked having my hands literally in a bucket of material, and that felt really good to me. So having and plaster fascinated me. Something that could set. So I was doing quite improvisational sort of work, um, building things in an hour or making stuff that took the time of the material to set or that I had the physical strength to build or twice my height. So a lot of it was, you know, I was interested in Bruce Nauman and I was kind of interested in Eva Hess and um, I didn't know about Philida Barlow then. But, uh, yeah, I was was really interested in, in making something that mirrored me somehow. I think that's what I liked about sculpture, and that was a big conversation. Scale. So scale. Yeah. yeah, scale was always a big conversation in the sculpture department. It seemed like that was... And actually, when I applied to the Royal College for my master's later, I'd been thinking about applying to sculpture there, and I went to see the sculpture department, and the only bit of feedback I got, this wasn't an interview, just to go see them, they said, oh, you're, I showed them my portfolio, they said, your work's too small for sculpture. <laughs> and I thought, oh, well, if you're not interested in me, then I'm not interested in you. I mean, it wasn't entirely like that, but I was struck by that. I mean, you left Harvard and obviously yeah. you ended up at the Royal College eventually, but in between, mm-hmm. you taught, right? Yeah. What, so, did, what did you teach? Uh, art and design at secondary school. In the UK? Yeah, or? in the yeah. UK. I had a friend who told me that life was going to be hard as an artist. She was a social worker. Actually, she wasn't at the time, but she is now. And she, a good you know, school friend. And she was like, Celia, this is crazy. You're never going to make a living. You should become a teacher. And I don't know why I listened to her, but I'm glad I did. Um, I did a PGCE in art and design. And I love teaching. I knew I liked teaching. I like communicating and teaching just looks like, it's very hard work, but it also looks like play to me Mm. because you have this opportunity to engage with an idea or a material or a thing. 
And I'd loved school as well. So it made, it's really funny, I've come to recognise as I've taught how different children's experiences of school can be and how just their attitude will inform how they approach learning. Um, But for me, when I was 23 and started teacher training, I felt very positive about school, secondary school in particular, being a teenager. And um, Were you academic as a a school child yourself, I wonder? Yeah, Mm. yeah, yeah, I was. I loved maths. I liked... um, yeah, I was, quite, I was very academic, actually. But I also really liked the arts. And what was nice about my family, if you're asking again, is they never saw a problem with that. There was never... And they were very open. I don't know why. But uh, shape yourself in whatever way you want was sort of their attitude. I was never... It's really funny now. I was never asked, what are you going to be? That was never a question when I was a kid. Whereas I feel like all education is now asking students that and it, it makes me really sad because I don't think it's a very helpful question mm. um, because I don't think you, you I think if you know what you like and what you love that will help you figure it out maybe I'm being romantic but so then you ended up at the Royal College I ended up at the Royal College why did you stop teaching um I think, I don't know if you saw that show but I did a show with Freddie Robbins in well she chose me for a show called Knit Two Together in 2004 or five, I think. When I finished at Harvard, before I started teaching, I got a fellowship to knit a journey around Japan. So I'd, I'd started knitting right at the end of my sculpture degree. And I don't know if I've spoken to you about this before, but um, I really was struggling in the studio. So I was using knitting as a way to warm up because I remembered that I could knit and I was thinking, oh, what sort of time-based, slow activity would encourage me to get into the studio? Actually, to to warm I, up mentally, right? Yeah, warm physically. up mentally and yeah. physically. Right. But it was actually like an inducement. Like if you've got a, something to do when you get in the studio, I felt a bit calmer. So I started knitting just as this like warming up activity. And after three months of warming up, I realised I'd knit this huge pile of knitting, which I hadn't really been paying attention to. I mean, if I'm honest, I think that some of the best things I make are when I'm not precisely looking straight at them. And in the studio, I try and get at that a lot. But it's a really hard thing because if you think, if you do it too actively, like I'm trying to make this byproduct, like I'm not, I'm concentrating on one thing, but I'm actually in the corner of my eye trying to keep an eye on that other thing that's happening and making, it's too self-conscious. Whereas if it genuinely just happens, it's like the back of embroidery or the back of work. If I, I'm often very pleased with the back of work. Lots of textile artists talk <laughs> yeah, about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a really common thing, but it's that sort of less, less self-conscious, more accidental mark. So I made this huge pile of knitting. I loved that it equaled the three months of time. I loved the length of it, the weight of it, the volume of it. And I um. So I'd proposed to a fellowship that I would like to measure out a journey in a piece of knitting in Japan, a country I'd never been to before and didn't speak Japanese. And based, I'd been interested in novels of Haruki Murakami, so I sort of had Japan really vividly in my head that year. And they said, yeah, all right, you can go. And the idea of this piece of work was that I would knit every day for nine months, carrying wool and needles and I would find wool in a place and knit it and then move on to the next place and the speed of the journey would be determined by the speed of my knitting 
And I loved, partly what I loved was that knitting needles are super portable. You know, you can just carry it as an art form. It's not so heavy. And that wool is available both in high-end stores and in local haberdashery or craft stores. That is this sort of universal material. Or not universal, but um, ubiquitous. You can find it. It's not that hard to find yarn. And when someone from the British Council, I think, must have seen me in Japan because I was doing this live a lot of the time, outdoors, in public. I had a small show in Kyoto and Freddie got wind of it. And when she was looking for work for that show, she somehow found me. I think it because it was early days of emails and I had a Hotmail account and I did have a business card that I'd taken with me to Japan. So I presume she must have, I've never actually asked her, I presume she must have got that card. And she invited me to be in the show Knit Two Together. And it was the first show I'd ever been in that was located me in textiles. And I was really excited about it. But particularly I was excited about Freddie. I found her really um, straightforward and interesting. And um, I loved how ambitious she was for work, textile work. I loved her work. Um, And she said she was one, I was teaching full time you know, in secondary school. And she said, hey, have you ever thought about coming to a master's at the Royal College? And actually I hadn't. That wasn't a way I was thinking. I was really, I think I was 26 and I was earning a living teaching. I I was holding on to it. I had a studio at Bow Arts Trust. Um, but Freddie was super influential in encouraging me even to think about being in the textiles department. And that's why I applied for the RCA. So that's interesting. You hadn't thought of being in that textile no, realm before. No, not really. It was a bit of a kind of yeah. luck, really, in some regard. I think it was a huge amount of luck, mm. though. You know, you could see that I was heading that way in a, in a bit because I was... I'd been doing these... I'd also been doing these thread pieces where I was, like, filling up space with thread. So I was, like, taking the height of my head and filling... Uh, threading a line across a room so that it would create a ceiling that was just at my head height. I was doing lots of work with thread and yarn, so it wasn't completely out of the blue to do textiles, but I think it... I hadn't thought of being an expert or whatever that... You know, that I hadn't <laughs> thought of being a specialist in textiles. Mm. I thought I was making sculpture and I hadn't imagined that the material and the, the and textiles could be the thing that shaped the work. So how did your work develop at the Royal College? Um, initially, I was completely... Um, I, was su- I was really excited about how good everyone was at making things and I knew I was good at making things but I didn't really and I knew I knew a lot about textiles actually because I should say I did study weave as well when I was in secondary school so god I should have said that straight from the beginning I did have this experience with weaving between 16 and 18 when I'd been weaving so I knew about weave structures but I'd always sort of like I said people telling me something is worth learning and then I it takes me to hmm. with weaving and it's like I did it just about right. I would say that's true of lots of the ways I work. Anyway, at Royal College, the work developed. Let me think. I had to do a lot of technical stuff to start with, which threw me. And I felt very confused, like digital embroidery, because I was on mixed media. And um, and I, I really wasn't sure how I fit in initially, actually. And it's a problem I see still with a lot of students that we get, that the school can feel, you can be a bit overawed by the level of skill with other students, the knitters on Dubie machines, the weavers on the jacquard, um, and the sense of a hand skill and how it 
conveys its sophistication or even it's not even about skill ideas so if an idea leads and then the material follows I remember feeling a bit like oh I'm not sure that's the right place but Freddie continued to encourage me and lots of the tutors did and had a fantastic class and in the beginning of my second year is when I started doing the mending work I was going to ask you about that I'm trying I'm glad to you it. I'm trying to, so I didn't know how to answer your question about how the work developed. I mean, I can talk project through project, but mending came in sort of second year. Well, let's talk about yeah. the, the kind of the, the catalyst yes. for your current work, if yeah, you like, yeah. uh, which is a jumper that belonged to your great uncle. I yeah, believe. the painter. Let's talk about let's okay. talk about the jumper. So, um, have you ever seen the jumper? Yes, I've seen photographs. So it's white and it's sort of big, like a big man's shape. It's hand knit, and he had died in 2000 had he died yeah he must have died sorry i've suddenly lots of people have been dying recently and my you know when you get it all confused yeah yeah um it suddenly shocked me even just say that out loud how many years it's been he had died my dad knowing that i like slightly lopsided off curious maybe lumpy damaged things i'm not 100% sure what his instinct was but i think it was cuz he he thought that is kind of Celia's thing. When they were clearing up my uncle's rooms, they found this sweater and it was heavily mended in the forearms. And he gave it to me. My dad gave it to me. What, what had he been doing? Well, that was the thing. So he, would, he was 96 when he died and he would sit in his armchair the last sort of four or five years of his life with a board across the arms of the armchair and he would just lean forward very heavily drawing. So... Uh, my dad gives me this sweater. I'm in love with it for lots of reasons. But two, the two main ones were that I could see very distinctly in all that wear and tear, the movements of his body, so the action of sitting, leaning forward and drawing. And I thought, oh, that's a really interesting idea that the garment holds something of a person. I mean, literally holds the body actions of a person. There's evidence in there. And then the other thing that really caught my attention was my aunt's mending because it had been repaired. It was so ready. You know, it was so like fast and just kind of, um, I don't know if you've, do you, has anyone mended your things in your life or do you? Mend no, things? not really. No, okay. I don't much to my chagrin. Okay. Well, it, some, sometimes it's super immaculate and perfect, but what I know, you know, it sits really level and flat with the surface of the cloth. It blends in really beautifully. Obviously, you know, a hundred years ago, children were being taught to do it invisibly. That was your goal. But my aunt's mending, what cracked me up was it, it was just like bits of yarn. It was all white, but they were different coloured whites. Mm. And then there's this funny little knitted patch that looks like a blister. And then, and I could totally, I loved that it was all small moments of repair. So it was just this constant attention to his sweater. But I also just loved how it was slightly, it was practical and unselfconscious, but kind as well you know there was a sort of kindness to her and I also the thing that was really moving was that she had pre or for me she died before him and so there were all these new holes that hadn't been tended to and I was I was suddenly you know those things just catch you all of a sudden where you think oh we didn't notice that was being neglected like the you don't recognize what the absence what death will what what hole it will leave exactly you think you might know but you don't and those little untended two holes really uh seemed like something to me mm. so that's that was the catalyst that sweater this idea of evidence the body being visible in a 
garment the slow wear of time as well because these holes only appear gradually and then that that um you know the broomstick and the broom handle like the sleeves were almost entirely repair and I was like when was the moment it tipped from being original into repair so uh for the listeners who might not yes. have seen the, the finished piece what did you do so I added to the blue into it um it's it's got like these white patches and then it's just got these extra bits of blue into it um that uh spread um up the sleeve i mean i've seen you describe your repairs as unapologetic oh yeah and um what does that mean i was uh what do i mean by that i guess if you think that um I'm a, I'm a terrible one for saying sorry in life, but in work I don't really say sorry. You know, I bump into people, it's an English habit, you bump into someone on a bus or <laughs> get to open the door or you, whatever. I, you know, I say sorry all the time. To- I Before I've done something wrong, I will say sorry a lot of the time. And yet what I like in my work is I, I never feel that compulsion. I find what I love about creative life and studio life is it's totally free. I can do and be however I want to be in here. So the unapologetic nature of the darning, I think it's that the damage is there and there's no need to feel sorry about it. In fact, it's kind of a great thing for me anyway. And repairing it, that's, repairing it is not, um, maybe, yeah, repairing it is, makes sense. So it's not a sorry, you know, there's nothing regretful about it. I mean, it seems to me that what your work has done is it started in this very personal way, but it's kind of broadened out. And I read a quote from Mm. you saying that, and I'll kind of paraphrase if you like, investigating holes uh, brings you into contact with people. And I'm wondering how that, how does it do that? Well, you know, if you think about that Japan trip where I was outdoors knitting, I'm super interested in others. And I think a lot of the time I'm looking for ways to meet other people. So when I started darning, so I did my uncle's sweater, I mended it. I'm in my second year of my RCA, building up to, you know, sort of trying to pull the work together. And I thought, well, if I'm interested in holes, I better see holes, like real holes. If I'm interested in damage, I should be looking for it. And I held this small exhibition where I invited members of the college to bring me things to wear. I mean, bring me things to darn. And uh, it was so funny because... The first day, the gallery's empty with nothing there to repair. And then slowly people started bringing things. I was like, oh, this is great. I'm meeting all these people that I wouldn't otherwise meet. And also, we're talking. So they would show me. This was my first foray into it. They'd show me their tights or their elbow hole or whatever. And um, I'd find we were talking quite intimately and quite personally with that as complete strangers. It's a bit like going to see a doctor. You sort of you imagine them in a role so like i'm the mender and i get i'm i'm working as a professional mender even though i feel deeply unprofessional i did at the time and people talk to you so it's a lovely way to i mean it's an interesting invitation show me something that you own with a hole in it yeah because what does repair mean to people psychologically what kind of stories were you hearing well i was hearing a lot about um i mean it's changed sort of I think as but early on I I heard tons of stories about grief and I wasn't sure if that was to do with me or the way I was asking the question or if the question just invites that but I think it was like uh, people heard repair and thought maybe 
there's something that needs looking after. You know, mm. there's something. And actually, I did a show much later called um, What Do I Need to Do to Make It Okay? And they framed a conference and they called it something like damage and repair. And I realised that actually it's the damage that interests me sometimes more than the repair. Mm. And I wondered if unconsciously I'd been communicating that early on. You know, instead of show me a hole, I was saying, show me the damage. I like a sad story. Freddie teases me that the sadder the better. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, linking neatly, I I think that you went from the Royal College, talking about damage, you went from the Royal College to... Trained as a nurse, yeah, which is fascinating. Why? Yeah, yeah. Why did you decide to do that? Well, I've been working for a few years. Um, do you know any nurses? Well, well, my whole family are from. They're all. Oh, they're in medicine, aren't all they? Of them. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. Okay, so you know that. Um, I had worked as a nurse in my early twenties, care assistant, actually, sort of to earn money and stuff, and I'd loved it. And then I don't know if you can see the link, or if I've made it clear, but the body. And the care was clearly developing as interest in this textile work. But I was also struggling to cut my way as an artist. I was un- it wasn't a lack of confidence exactly. I just wasn't sure about how I fit in the world or what the work's going to do. And I actually thought nursing would be a really solid job that would be an anchor. And then I'd have the studio at the same time. And I also thought felt strongly that nursing would teach me things about care that I was trying to get at. So, yeah, I went and I did uh, at King's College London and I worked at St Mary's for two years, more or less, St Mary's Hospital. Crazy hospital. Mm. Mm. (laughs) I mean, something that... Was it still in the back of your head that you wanted to be an artist? Definitely. And I think, weirdly, doing... Although it's quite a struggle, doing the nursing training was this odd flip-sided confirmation that I was more of an artist than a nurse mm. although I loved nursing I was I don't think I was bad at it I'm certainly safe and I was able to look after people but um as I was doing it more and more I started to feel like this isn't right you should be being an artist <laughs> what are you doing and I left rather dramatically just I just one day said I can't do this anymore this is wrong I'm doing I'm leading the wrong life I should be being an artist much to well the only person no, actually, my family were pretty supportive. They were a bit confused. Friends were confused. And then some friends were really relieved. They said, oh, thank God, I really, it was really important that you were an artist. <laughs> I was so worried that you were going into nursing. I mean, nursing is a tough life. Mm-hmm. I mean, financially, being an artist is arguably sometimes probably harder. Um, yeah. Uh, was it difficult to, to leave relative security to, to do something... That, is, that isn't secure. And also you mean the, the security of nursing yeah, and a paycheck? in terms of a, paycheck. Yeah, 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 it was. It was terrifying. It was absolutely terrifying. And weirdly, I think it was really good, really, really good, because it meant I had to give more to work. You know, the, the fear of it was like, well, you, you have to make this work. I mean, teaching still sustains me financially, of course, but also um, from a work perspective, I love teaching. And I just... It was a, I returned to making with a different commitment, I think, after I finished nursing. That's interesting. Mm. I mean, can I ask a bit about how important when you're doing what you're doing, well, you can think about a market, who's going to buy this, who's going to commission me. I'm hopeless. <laughs> I am beyond hopeless. Uh, no, I'm almost never thinking about a market. Um, I feel like it, it's not that I'm a chance at, but I dwell in some middle ground of 
great confidence and deep insecurity, which many artists do, I think, where I, um, I'm excited to get shows. The work seems to be selling. People seem interested in the ideas. When the work sells, it sells to private collectors private or collectors, museums? Or? Private collectors. Right. Uh, this year I had a commission with a museum. That was amazing to work with their archive. And actually archives are quite an appealing. This was the Nouveau Musée National de Monaco. So they commissioned me. We've been working together for about three years. And they just, what I loved is they'd heard about me. They'd seen a piece of work in a show and they invited me over really speculatively because they had a problem with the damaged costumes in their collection. And they just didn't know what to do about it. So the first invitation was, what would, what do you think? What's your response to this collection? And, um, and then it built, we did one project together and then this year they commissioned this flying gold cape project, which was amazing, where I mended one of their costumes and they were totally free with letting me take it out for people to wear because I was thinking again about meeting people there are things that dwell in archives that are never going to get an outing that are just going to sit in an archive and in fact they'll just disintegrate more they'll never even probably go on show because they're the poor example of what is already in the collection and since I know that I can keep mending something I was. I said, look, if it gets damaged, I'll just mend it again. I'll just keep mending it. And I thought, uh, yeah, so we took this cape on the road for people to wear and perform in. And it's a pretty magical object. And so it was really easy. It was just like the simplest thing in the world. You show up with a gold cape and some music and people dance and sing and wear it, whether they're children or adults with dementia or, you know. It was important to me that we did it with lots of different groups and... Um, I mean, the interesting thing about, about what you do, Celia, is it seems to me that it doesn't seem to matter what garment... You, I mean, I've seen you work yeah. on natural jumpers, yeah. but also tracksuits and track synthetics. Suits, yeah. I mean, the tracksuits, I think, confuse people because actually the tracksuits have been had holes cut in them, which are my way of... Um, but I love the tracksuit because it doesn't unravel when you cut it, and I love the way it bumps up a little bit. But I also like that the sort of unsportiness of a hole in a tracksuit. I mean, the tracksuits came about from sports socks, which came about from the Cultural Olympiad when I was employed to um, do some projects in Stratford for the Olympics. And uh, my idea was that that I was going to train an army of darners ready at the sidelines of the, you know, what, the track to darn Jess Ennis Hills <laughs> shorts or whatever. Yeah, you know, I mean, it was sort of stupid and sort of serious at the same time. You know, if we live in Stratford, how can we be useful to the Olympics beyond being cheerleaders? And so that was how I started on the sort of sports wear. But yeah, most materials I'm interested in, I realise I like wool a bit better um, or... But cottons and silks, I'm happy to look at uh, and do. I think I like wool because I'm a bit heavier with wool. It can fit nicer in my hands. It's also quicker. Our time is nearly up. Yep. So um, kind of final question really about kind of future aspirations. Where do you see your work going? Where can you take it? Well, I've become obsessed with tapestry. (laughs) I did some tapestry this summer and... um, I mean, this is what's on the wall at the moment. And towels, old towels. I got this thing at the moment about old towels, used towels and old blankets and trying to integrate them with tapestry. I'm really keen to make some really big things, just physically big objects that grow and grow and grow and slightly take over the studio. Well, that's a wonderful place to leave it. Celia Pym, thank you very much. Thanks, Grant. (laughs) 